I got ace of spades. He's got ace of spades. <laughs> That's what you call coincidences. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome back to your place for all things Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo. And occasionally Gummo, and once in a while even Manfred. Uh, this is Bob Gassell, and I'll be your host today from beautiful downtown Fairfield, Connecticut. And as always, I am joined by my esteemed colleagues. First of all, the author of the Annotated Marx Brothers, That's Me Groucho, and other sorted... <laughs> Other assorted books. We have come to us from jolly old England, Mr. Matthew <laughs> Conium. Hello, thank you for having me. Yep, I've got a mince pie, I've got a cigar, I'm ready to party. And also joining us from just across the border in New York City, we have Noah Diamond, the author, author of... <laughs> What's the name of your book again? I'm sorry. <laughs> My book is called Give Me a Thrill, the story of us. <laughs> That'll teach me to have a beer before we start. <laughs> thank okay. you for that intro, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Noah. Um, so anyhow, we're going to be doing something a bit different for this segment. Uh, we're actually not going to be talking about the Marx Brothers. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't turn us off. Don't change it. No, no, no. Stay stay tuned because uh, I promise you're going to like it. Uh, we're going to be talking about us, actually. Uh, and when I say us, I mean Marx Brothers fans and the Marx Brothers fandom and where we are today and where it's going in the future. And because of that, we've decided to call this episode... The Marx Brothers of the 21st and a half century. <laughs> so before we get started, just a little disclaimer here that a lot of what we're going to talk about are our personal experience and observations. So we obviously can't speak for everyone. Uh, it's probably best to think of this as a conversation starter or a jumping off point for your own thoughts. So as always, feel free to give us your feedback in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook page, or you could just send us some nasty emails and private messages. <laughs> Anyhow, this all started because I was reading about a Marx Brothers marathon playing on uh, TV New Year's Eve, and I started thinking about how many people were going to be watching and who they would be. Back in my day, and I'm not ashamed of my age, I was born on March 14th, uh, back in my day, these were somewhat big events, and I knew lots of people who would plan their whole New Year's festivities around watching the films. But uh, nowadays, I'm not so sure how many folks will be watching. And that saddens me somewhat, you know. Uh, one time, cultural centerpiece seems to have become somewhat of a, a fringe interest. Maybe I'm wrong here, or maybe I just need to adjust my thinking. Uh, when I became a hardcore fan as a young teen, my parents, who were who had grown up with the Marxes, basically dismissed them as an old relic. Um but to me and my contemporaries, we saw a freshness and a freedom that really stuck a chord. And I wonder if it's even possible for young people to see them the same way these days. So why don't we get started by you, Matthew, Noah, why don't you guys tell me about how you discovered the team and we'll go from there. Well, I was just thinking actually what you were saying there about time moving on. And, and I was doing doing some calculations in my head because I, mean, I, I first saw them in 1983 when I was 10 and the films then seemed to me impossibly old the 1930s was a you know was it was a a time that was so old it was beyond imagining to me i'm now thinking mm -hmm. that that's uh that christmas when i saw them is now as as roughly as distant in the past as love happy was when i was when <laughs> i was watching them and i saw love happy uh i think the following january and it seemed like 
something from prehistory and uh, that that viewing is now about as old as love happy was uh, when i watched it which is a, a strange and terrifying thought but yes no I, I i didn't really have anyone in my family who who liked them um obviously they'd heard of them my my grandparents who were of an age to see them didn't like them they said no that I, oh, I never liked any of that rubbish slapstick <laughs> stuff you know mm-hmm. Um, my parents had no strong feelings either way, although my dad did watch some of them with me and, and laughed a lot at them. But it was really, it was just me. It was my little solitary, um, you know, uh, entirely personal uh, thing. Um, nobody at my school at that point knew who I was talking about. I went back in after Christmas full of them, you know, and, and they, they didn't know what I was talking about. When I got a bit older, I found that you, you would occasionally meet people, um, that, that knew them and liked them. And they were never anyone in particular and they're never any type of person in particular. I found that, that people who stumbled across them tended to like them. If they, if you like comedy, if you, if you like comedy generally, I can't imagine you not liking them and it would always be a pleasant surprise when a, that connection would be made often with with people who you wouldn't expect uh, a couple of people in school and i remember when i was at university um i was living in a, in a hall of residence and across the hall from me was a, a girl who was stu- had come over from australia who was studying and we didn't you know have much to to say to each other until she saw a marx brothers picture on my wall and and then the ice the ice broke because because she loved them too and it's like it's like sort of discovering you're you're a, a you know a Freemason or something you know uh, it, it's like a secret <laughs> yeah. secret code you're, oh you you get it too you're in on it too and and it, you know it's always a wonderful moment and it's often a surprise there are people who love old movies and old comedy and they're guaranteed to like them but I find that there are also people who aren't particularly interested in old movies and old comedy but who saw them specifically um and just thought hey this is this is actually really good stuff i i like these i don't have to make any allowances here i don't have to make any adjustments this is just plain funny yeah that's very similar to my experience um of of course the big change in in the last several decades is the growth of the internet and being a fan of anything on the obscure side or on the older side used to be a fairly lonely business like you, Matthew, I was, when I was a child and a teenager, you know, my mania for the Marx Brothers was something I was so loud about that, you know, it was easy to find me if, <laughs> if you were another kid at my school and you happened to, to know and like the Marx Brothers. Um, you knew that uh, that kid who was always talking about them <laughs> shares your interest. And there were always, you know, one or two. I mean, I, I went to a lot of different schools when I was a kid and we moved a, a lot. And so I was always getting um, uh, assimilated into a new peer group. And every peer group had, you know, I would say one to five other kids who were aware of the Marx Brothers. Uh, now, of course, and, you know, it, it's so much easier now for fans to find each other and enjoy the things they love together. I think I I graduated from high school in 1995, and that was the year I first heard the word internet. I, I learned what the internet was, and then I think in the maybe uh, the few years after that, it it began to become part of our lives. Email entered our our daily routine, and services like AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe began the sort of online world that we are all now living in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been, you know, a hugely dramatic change. 
We also are living in an age of niche tastes and, and the death of the mass audience. When, even when, when, uh, we were growing up, you know, it was still a time when, you know, 20, 40 million people were all watching the same television show at once. Um, today, of course, uh, you know, if, if a, a, a live television show gets like 3 million viewers, that's a huge mass mm -hmm. audience. And so niche taste, uh, in a way, has moved further up the ladder, hasn't it? Because if a few million people are into something, then it's on the same scale as institutions like The Tonight Show. Yep. I, I agree very much, too, with what you said, Matthew, about um, when people know the Marx Brothers, they, they tend to like them. Um, so I don't, I, you know, I don't think there's much of a case to be made for like young people don't like the Marx Brothers. Um, I think it's more a matter of are they being exposed to the Marx Brothers? Yes. And mm -hmm. right across the board, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody, you know, really giving their attention to some of the Marx Brothers better movies and then coming away thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't like those guys. Mm -hmm. I have had known a lot of people who, yes, kind of assumed it's a lot of throwing pies at each other and, you know, poking each other in the eyes. Uh, um, and, and on that basis, because of what they assumed the Marx Brothers were, they thought, yes, that's, that's not for me. That's very foolish and silly. Except for J.K. Burgess. <laughs> Theater operator, the theater operator in uh, North Dakota. Uh, oh, oh, yes, yes. I, there are, I guess, there are some delightful, <laughs> documented disapprovals. Sorry about the obscure reference, folks. Uh, that's a little uh, shout out to our Facebook regulars. But you know, it's like I'm, I'm always making the comparison with Shakespeare and Mozart and Chaplin. You know, these bodies of work are, it seems to me unequivocally good and you know you may have a chip on your shoulder lots of people ah, i don't like shakespeare <laughs> but you know come on if you really get into it, it it's impossible to deny the genius you know there are people who who don't like chaplin though you know and, and they put forward various reasons for it um obviously i'm i'm not one of them but but i can understand I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody said i really like old movies but i just i just don't for some reason i just don't get chaplin but if you yes if you like comedy if you are somebody who likes comedy, it's very, very hard to imagine the Marx Brothers leaving you cold. It's always, it's always um, a mistaken uh, preconception, either that they're pie throwers or the other one that you sometimes get is that all old comedians, as opposed to new comedians, are cozy uh, people who wear sweaters, play golf uh, and uh, gently rib Mr. President, you know, that, that, that there's a kind of a, a coziness all to, to old comedy. But you only, as you know, you only have to watch them for, for two minutes to see that they're not like that. They're the opposite of that. And I think that comes across very clearly, uh, as clearly as it ever did. Yeah. When I came home from school as a, as a young kid, there was always like the little rascals and the stooges on TV. But the world wasn't that different uh, from what I had been living in. Yeah, they didn't have TV. But they had, you know, they had phones, they had cars, and though the styles were a bit different, it was a, a recognizable world that I was able to still understand. But I think, you know, people nowadays, if looking back at those old films, I mean, they might as well be looking back at uh, colonial times. It just, it just feels that far, so far back. And the other thing that we were very lucky about was that we only had a few television channels until well into the 1990s. I think we only had four television channels, literally, and there were no oh, yeah. other television channels. So, so everyone in my, in my school basically watched the same things or, you know, one of three things. 
and it was just a very rich time um bbc2 at 5:40 would put on a short comedy on on weekdays so we would see chaplin right. we would see the laurel and hardy shorts um they also showed um a series of of uh, a program called harold lloyd's world of comedy i think which was a, a television oh, yes. series of edits uh, of harold lloyd which was which was huge over here i mean anyone my age um whether they are interested in comedy or not uh, will know harold lloyd which is a, a very strange thing to be saying, but they will. They'll be able to sing the theme song. Mm. It was a very big thing. Um, so we were very, very fortunate that there wasn't a lot of choice, which meant there wasn't a lot of channel switching. Um, and uh, all, all kids I knew watched old black and white movies. I mean, some liked comedy, some didn't. But if they didn't, they were watching Tarzan or, or Charlie Chan. Or, you know, it was, it was just a staple of television right into the 1980s. Right. If I had the option when I was eight or nine to tune in something like uh, the Disney Channel or Cartoon Network, uh, there's no way I would have come across a lot of these classics. Well, on the other hand, I remember seeing when I was I, probably 12-ish, um, Comedy Central in its original incarnation when it was called the Comedy Channel had a program called Dead Comic Society that was hosted by Robert Klein. And that's where I saw so many Chaplin shorts for the first time and some of the Fields shorts, the Fatal Glass of Beer, uh, which just knocked me out at 12. Um, so I don't know. I mean, cable culture did involve a lot of reruns and, and early film. And uh, I also learned who Robert Klein was that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, my, my point was, no, is that even though the, the options are much greater, you are going to search out things that you know you like. Oh, I see. Kids wouldn't look for it. For yeah. example, when I would turn on the TV after dinner, uh, my only choices would be three news shows or uh, uh, the Dick Van Dyke mm. show. So exactly. I only got into a exactly. bunch of these things because I didn't have the option to put on SpongeBob or something like that. That yeah, I, I, it's a good point. Yeah, we wa we watched Laurel and Hardy because that was either that or the news. But if if there was you know six other channels showing. Um, I don't know whatever people watch these days, then we would have watched that, you know. <laughs> and we ended up loving Laurel and Hardy. I think it's possible that um, one might be more quick to see what's great about the Marx Brothers if you have some immersion in older entertainment, because then you see how modern and revolutionary they were relative to their contemporaries. You know, if you if you're very aware of the way most actors talked in in early talkies, then the delivery of Groucho and Chico, you know, seems even more uh, bracingly different and modern and funny. Yes, and their trump card obviously is that they're that they are iconoclastic, isn't it? That's the thing, you know. Laurel and Hardy, however, however brilliant they are, they're genteel and they're of a, they're of a piece with the world in which in which they are set. But the Marx Brothers, yeah. you know, they they come on and they insult people and they, you know, pull the rug from under uh consensus and th and they're really the only ones who who do that in that in that full-on intimidating way and that can't help but but convey itself i think to to any modern audience it just there's a pace and an attack and it's 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 all their own and it's very and that aspect of them is very modern i think that's the i think that's the thing that most appeals now to modern people is partly the the sophistication of the absurdity when they're really at their best but mainly the fact that they that they come on uh to attack absolutely you know back in the heyday of the marx renaissance and i'd say even going up into the 90s the marxes were uh, a recognizable 
touchstone of pop culture. They'd be in commercials, they'd be imitated, they'd be referenced, and with real no explanation. Everybody just It was just assumed everybody knew who they were. Uh, nowadays, that's pretty much gone. Uh, is there any hope for the pendulum swinging back? I mean, I hate to do this to my wife, but I, I must I must share this anecdote yet again. When I first met my wife, I, I said, um, hey, there's uh, a complete Marx Brothers season on at the National Film Theatre. Would you like to come? And she said, yes, OK, if that's all right. I said, do you like the Marx Brothers? And she, says, she said, are they those those two men with the hats who sing, uh, <laughs> who, who sing uh, you know, um, blues music? So uh, that's that's about that's about what you're going to get over here, I'm afraid. I think there are certain names that just linger for some reason. Everybody knows the name Charlie Chaplin and possibly Humphrey Bogart and possibly Rudolph Valentino, mm-hmm. oddly enough. Um, if you draw Charlie Chaplin's face, people can probably put a name to it. I would think these days over here, at least, even if you draw Groucho's caricature face, um, they might recognize it. I doubt they'd put a name to it. I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast yet, but I was once on my way to a a gig where I was appearing as Groucho. And because of the logistics, I had to arrive in costume. So I was in full Groucho makeup and costume on the New York City subway. Roller skating? No, no, but a bunch of kids instantly identified me as Borat. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I do think the part of this though has more to do with how fragmented popular culture has become. You know, popular culture used to be kind of one stream. Um, and that's just not true anymore. I don't know that they are less prominent in popular culture as much as popular culture itself is coming from a million different places from a million angles now, which is in many ways a very good thing. But anybody who, uh, like I believe all three of us has a Google News alert set to Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know that every day, um, some, mm-hmm. uh, article somewhere is using the Marx Brothers as a reference point. Yeah. Or, usually political these days. Yeah. Very, very often true. political. Yeah. <laughs> The same, the same three or four jokes, isn't it? By by all these different political writers who think they're the first yeah. one to use them, and it, you get the same. It's you know, um, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes, isn't it? That's that's at least yeah. twice a week that one will come up. And a, a lot of comedy works are described as, oh, it's the Marx Brothers meet you know Sophie's Choice or mm. something. But um, mm. but I mean, just the fact that yeah, often there is a real kind of tiredness to those references. But the fact that so many writers feel comfortable yeah. using them suggests to me that the reference is, is not that obscure. Yeah. Nobody's going to say as Clark and McCulloch. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I don't know, I guess is the Vlasic pickle stork still, uh, <laughs> we never had him. I'm afraid I feel so. Oh, deprived. well, I only found out about him in the last couple of years, actually, that, <laughs> that little stork. The classic pickle stork. He has a vaguely Groucho-like bird who eats pickles. So who would you say is their audience now, other than us old farts in the Facebook group? Good question. Yeah, it is, it's old farts, I think, and, and anyone who has the good fortune to, mm. um, to see them accidentally. I, I think they're a very tough mm. sell. Um, I don't think you could get anybody to to come and see them, you know, no matter how well you describe mm-hmm. them. I find the best way to turn my, at least I have a couple of teenage kids, and the best way to turn them on to something isn't necessarily for me to sit them down and tell them how great this is and sit down and watch it. It's for me to, the best way to get them into something is for me to put it on and then just have them like peek down the stairs like, what are you watching? What is this? And Or have them walk across like, what is this? And very often they'll stop and 
uh, get into it. It worked when uh, for showgirls. <laughs> Maybe we could work uh, use the same <laughs> thing for a Marx Brothers show. It, if only it were as easy as turning your kids onto marijuana. <laughs> I, I don't know that I completely grant the premise of this question. I mean, I, 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 I clearly most people who love the Marx Brothers probably are older people, although not the original Marx Brothers audience, which is basically not around anymore. But I don't know. It seems to me there's a lot of teens and 20-somethings in the council. And um, I, I, of course, am in a sort of limited little world of New York and New York theater and mm -hmm. everything. But I don't know. In, in my experience, we were consistently amazed at how many young people um, came to see I'll Say She Is and came to Marxfest events and That's were good. really That's into good. it. Mm -hmm. And I've struck up lots of, you know, little pen pal relationships with with children and, and kids who, who love the Marx Brothers. And when the Paramounts were remastered and re-released just a couple of years ago, um, I went to see each of them at the Film Forum uh, in, uh, in downtown Manhattan. And those audiences, too, were full of children. Um, there was even a, like a, kitty matinee of horse feathers that was just packed. It was like being in the Punch and Judy scene in Monkey Business because the kids in the audience were so demonstrative. Now, in, in many cases, of course, that's parents and yeah. grandparents bringing their kids to see it. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I guess we can't assume that all those kids were completely of their own volition showing up for this stuff. But I, I think it's a little more hopeful, maybe, than is generally perceived. Again, that's an advantage of, of the internet, of course, yeah. isn't it? In that it does make, it makes communities out of misfits. Um, I could understand if you were in some little town in the middle of nowhere and you didn't know anybody else who liked them. Obviously, that wouldn't stop you liking them, but it might, it might cause your, your interest in them to sort of plateau at a, at a, a sane level. But if you're, if you then go home and, and switch on your laptop and there's a Facebook group where there are thousands of other people, I mean, th thousands of people in the world is a very small number. But, but when you're on the keyboard, it's, a, it's a vast community and it does encourage, um, fanaticism, you know, in a good way. It does, it does make you want to make more of your interests than you otherwise might perhaps. I was wondering if there, if we have a reliable way of measuring the size of the audience for something like the Marx Brothers. And I was trying to get some answers by looking at the Amazon sales rankings for their DVDs and things. Um, that quickly feels futile because there are so many different editions and versions and each one has its own ranking. Uh, but it seemed to me from a little five minute dig in that direction that the Marx Brothers films on DVD, um, sell comparably to films that I think of as more popular, like The Godfather I looked at and mm -hmm. Casablanca. You know, the, uh, of course, these are other classic films, uh, each of which is, you know, reasonably old. But um, uh, if that's any measure, they're, they're, they're doing great on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me play devil's advocate for a minute, because when you're talking about physical media, you're talking about something that only appeals uh, people of a certain age. Uh, yeah. In my experience, most people under 30 have no use for DVDs or... Yeah, DVDs. that's and true. If they can't stream it, uh, they're, they're not going to watch. That's a very good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, the 8-track is selling great. They must be popular. <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I was about uh, 11 or 12 years old, I went to visit my uh, brother who was going to college. Uh, on campus, they had, uh, you know, they had a Marx Brothers screening. They had uh, Duck Soup Night at the Opera. 
double feature and we tried going and we couldn't get in because it was sold out and I got upset. And he said, don't worry, they're going to have this again tomorrow. We went back the next night and the place was packed and it was just absolutely rolling, you know, and I, and I, it felt to me like about half the people there were hardcore fans and they had brought their friends, you know, along to be with them. I don't know if that type of communal experience to expand the fandom is going to happen anymore, which is a shame because I think that's the best way to turn into it if you haven't. Yeah. I think the other point that needs to be made as well is that however small the fandom is, and it could well be very, very small in relation to, to the, the, the wider world, nonetheless, within the fandom, we do seem to be living in a, in a, in a quite a vibrant moment. Uh, there was obviously the 60s and the 70s was a was a big time for 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 fandom the marx fandom and then the last sort of 20 years you know it's just kind of trundled along but there seems to be a lot of energy about at the moment a lot of books a lot of new uh perspectives and and sort of renewed interest i mean i, I bet in the last five years there's been more marx brothers books than in the last 20 I would yeah, have thought. Yeah, so. the, uh, the Adamson children have grown up and have written their own books. <laughs> <laughs> the Adamson family. <laughs> <laughs> While putting the show together, I was thinking about how, as each generation uh, ages out, uh, the meaning of a few Groucho jokes or Chico puns gets lost into uh, the dustbin of history. Um, will our kids even know what a taxi is, uh, much less a huff? How much of it is lost already? I don't think that matters too much because I mean one of the reasons why I wrote my book with the uh, with the partial aim of of explaining all the, the curious references is because they meant nothing to me at the time partly because I was young but also because I was British so an awful lot of the jokes when I first saw them at the age of 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 didn't um I didn't get the full meaning of them but I still, I still found them hilarious. It wasn't, it wasn't a, an obstacle. Uh, it just made them seem more interesting and more obscure. And I have to, to admit, in some cases, I actually preferred not understanding them. Um, in some cases, they seemed a lot, a lot more absurd and, and wackier. And obviously, the, the classic example I always, I always cite is um, uh, a cup of coffee, a sandwich, and you from the opera Aida. When I, when I first heard that, I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And I, I've sort of in stages found out more and what so when i first said it i didn't even know that was a real <laughs> song i thought he made up uh, an extremely funny fake song title so the first disappointment was that it was a real song and then the the crushing blow was that it, it just might be a pun on aita which for my money kills <laughs> it dead but um but but it, it certainly yeah, to get back to your your main point no it wasn't an obstacle it just made them seem more exotic I think there's so much going on in their work that, you know, whether you specifically comprehend every joke or every reference is, is not really very important. You know, you, uh, their work is so overwhelming in, in, in what it conveys to everybody. Um, and, and their ability to provide something for everybody is part of the key to their greatness and also their longevity. Um, you know, the whole family can, can watch the Marx Brothers. And even if you're a pre-verbal child, you, there's plenty to laugh at, uh, in their movies. Um, and meanwhile, if you're a sophisticate and uh, literary minded person, there's all kinds of stuff that's just for you in there too. Um, I, you know, the, um, experience of getting to know something is partly part of the fun of it is deciphering it. 
um, and, and not having everything right on the surface level, easily digested on first viewing, mm-hmm. um, you know, curiosity about some of the references that uh, Matthew dissects in his book, or, or even some of the things, you know, for example, the point that you both have made so well about you know, we don't think of the Paramount films as parodies now, but that's what they were. Horse Feathers is a parody of college films. You don't have to know that to enjoy it, but having learned that, it becomes enjoyable in a whole other way. There's a whole new avenue to explore. Uh, when I was uh, a kid and getting to like Monty Python, I was aware that there was a tremendous amount of their material that I didn't get, either because I just wasn't exposed to the things they were referring to, or in some cases it was... British cultural stuff that just wasn't on my radar. Um, that made it more interesting. And I think it's also important to remember, of course, that, that they always did have a have a half and half appeal, even in their own day. Uh, there was the, the sophisticated audience and the popular audience who who were catered for um you know, individually and, and, and at the same time, there was always that mix in their work, which was one of the things that made them so interesting was that on the one hand, they were incredibly broad. And on the other hand, they were incredibly subtle and that they were both at the same time. So that's not really something that just happened in later generations. I think it was always part of, part of what they offered. Absolutely. Highbrow and lowbrow appeal. Okay, well, this leads to the inevitable question of whether the brothers will eventually be considered too politically incorrect uh, for the modern audiences. Um, I've already heard stories of uh, new viewers not reacting favorably to Harpo's chasing of women or some of Groucho's, uh, I guess, borderline sexist uh, remarks. And I guess it's only a matter of time before Chico is considered an insulting stereotype. Uh, You know, we might only have Zeppo left (laughs) when the dust clears. (laughs) Now, Zeppo is ageist. He says, hello, old timer. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think this is a big concern. I mean, uh, you know, I guess there are certainly individual moments or passages in their work that we're very aware of that that don't play as well today. Um, You know, the uh, Gabriel and Swingali numbers are are oft discussed in this way. Um, Groucho has a um, a racial slur in duck soup. He's actually quoting from a song, which is not racist, and it and it is a nonsense line anyway. Um, most of this stuff, I think, falls apart pretty quickly on scrutiny. Um, and you know, I I think in the in the world of things, even if you are looking for things to be offended by, I don't know. I don't think the Marx Brothers offer much in that department, and. I don't think on the list of things that people might uh, take issue with in entertainment of the past, I don't think the Marx Brothers are in great danger of becoming uh, excessively taboo. I, I think these things are, are a lot less uh, linear than 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 the, they seem when you're when you're living through a particular historical moment. It, it feels like you're going in a in a set direction, but but in actual fact, I think standards change and ideas change with each generation. I think at the moment, I think as things are at this particular snapshot of time in December of 2018, yes, the risk you identify, I think, is a significant one. I, I don't necessarily think that that we, we you know we will necessarily continue moving in that direction. I certainly agree with Noah that it doesn't stand mm-hmm. up to scrutiny. I think we live in an age though where where unfortunately not a great 
premium is is put on scrutiny i i think instinctive reactions and emotional reactions tend to uh, tend to trump scrutiny these days but um there's no reason to think that that's an you know the, the essential road that we're traveling on and and it may well be that that things change again i mean i look back at my own childhood which is only you know, is less than a, a generation ago, and and the, ex- the, the not just the big changes, but the very subtle ones, the 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 small ones that you don't notice. Things constantly shift. The sand is is constantly shifting beneath our feet. So I I don't think we're necessarily on a on a collision course with with this stuff. But right here, right now, yes, I do think they're they're at risk from from that kind mm-hmm. of a reading. Well, let me ask you guys this. In the five or six years or so that the Facebook group has been around, uh, we've interacted with literally thousands of Marx fans from all ages and backgrounds uh, from all around the globe. What has been the most surprising thing that you've learned about the Marx fandom? I didn't realize that that, that, that they held any erotic appeal. But there's a very strong contingent of people who find specifically Harpo and or specifically Chico, extremely alluring. And, and one person <laughs> with Zeppo, um, <laughs> extremely alluring hmm. in a way that, that, that surprises me. But it's very definitely there. <laughs> I don't know if I'm surprised by this, but one thing I do notice a lot, particularly with um, older Marx Brothers fans, is the absolutely pervasive influence of Joe Adamson. Um, of course, we all cherish his book, and it was formative. Who? <laughs> and it was formative for many. Never heard of it. Oh, Adamson. You remember this guy who talks like, talks like this? Yeah, the guy who always talks into a helicopter propeller. Really, I mean, it, and it's, this is partly because of the excellence of his work and also because he was way out in front as far as he was really a pioneer in, in writing about them. Um, but, you know, his opinions and his viewpoints are so widely accepted and lots of people giving their opinions about the Marx Brothers uh, really are giving his opinions. Um, I don't yeah. think it's uh, disingenuous of them. I think they've absorbed what he had to say and so much of it does mm-hmm. ring true. Uh, I am surprised how often when people talk about the Marx Brothers and write about them, uh, how liberally they borrow from from Joe and how uh, maybe more than anybody else, he has influenced the way fans think about them and talk about them. But even if you have a different opinion, it still it still um, def- defines itself as different from his. You know, he's, he's the touchstone, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. I think people who, who say, you know, well, actually, you know, I. I differ from Joe Adamson on this, and they say it sort of cautiously. <laughs> yeah. um, it's you know it, it, you you either agree or you define yourself as as not agreeing. It's um, I mean it's just it, it, that book came at a time. It, it was actually published in the year I was born, which is interesting to me. Um, it, it was at a time when there was an awful lot of interest in old movies and an awful lot of books started being written. It was the seventies nostalgia boom. There was a huge number of books on old movies, but when you look at them now, they're delightful books. There's, there's nothing wrong with them, but they're basically pictures and captions and descriptions and credits. And there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of passion in them, but Joe's book is it really stands out from the sort of books that were being written at that time in that you it's written by somebody who who has a voice that you can yes. hear you can virtually it's almost like it's almost like an audiobook 
he's sort of he's talk he, the book talks to you and if you look at an all most film books really from the from the early 1970s they're great books they're fun books but they don't they don't talk to you. this is a, this is a book that sort of it's like it's like a participant in a conversation absolutely it also rewards repeated readings in a way that these kinds of books don't always um, and so many people have read Joe's book, you know, over and over again. They can quote passages from it, uh, which is not necessarily true, even of lots of excellent books about film stars or artists or comedians. I guess the most surprising thing to me is the number of what I would consider hardcore and knowledgeable Marx fans who strongly defend the final three MGM films. Uh, I always assume people who like those were casual fans who just didn't know any better. But, you know, I've learned a lot through my encounters with, with the fandom. Um, first of all, for a lot of people, these were the first Marx films they ever saw, and it defined what their humor was. Yes. And actually, uh, for the most part, uh, these people who defend the films, they do like them, but they do also admit that they are not up to the uh, par for the, of their classics. But they have a soft spot for them because of their history with them. You know, I sometimes wish I had that too. Uh, I grew up being exposed to their classics first and the change in tone and characterization in the later ones uh, was so powerful that uh, to this day, I often have to train myself to uh, to enjoy them. It took me a while to love A Night at the Opera even. I, I saw all the Paramounts before any MGMs and I remember the, the Night, Night at the Opera was the was the last one that I really couldn't wait to see it was the last one that was a real kind of oh yes i can tick this one off my list now here it comes at the opera and the first time i saw it i was disappointed because it had that mgm feel to it and it took me a couple of viewings to to get to the point where i am now where i do absolutely adore it it's one of my real favorites but the first time i saw it it was a disappointment and the first time i saw um go west you know i i didn't even manage to get through it all in one go so yes it is it is a surprise but then i don't know i suppose if you i don't know i was going to say if you love them enough then 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 it makes sense but in a way if you love the more you love them the more irksome i think it is Mm -hmm. to see them being being misused Mm -hmm. it's difficult i mean i i it took i used to like at the circus a lot more than i did so it's it's hard to remember why it didn't bother me in the way it bothers me now, but it, it didn't when I first saw it. Yeah, like I said earlier, almost everyone who has a fondness for, say, uh, the big store explains it with, uh, oh, that was the first one I saw as a kid, or mm, mm. The, the roller skating thing was the funniest thing I ever saw. Uh, so I guess they have a different backstory. Uh, it's not one that I can't relate to, but I'm beginning to understand where they're coming from. Some of it is the difference between best and favorite, you know, mm-hmm. which is sometimes you might love something the best while recognizing that it's not of the highest quality, but for sentimental reasons, it's it means more to you. Mm-hmm. But I also think this has somewhat to do with different ways of being a fan, you know, which is personal. You know, to some fans, the, the whole point of loving a cultural entity like the Marx Brothers is to love it uncritically. And why would you look for things to criticize, or why would you air your objections to their missteps? It strikes some as 
petty and and ungracious even, whereas some others feel that that is the fun. Thinking critically about this stuff makes it more fun. Um, celebrating their great triumphs is uh, is is part and parcel with uh, being able to recognize like when they mm. when they went off the rails or when they were doing lesser work or when circumstances mm. conspired to give us yeah. less than their best. Yes, uh, understanding why their best films are their best also implies that there's an other side of the coin. Yeah. Yes, and I, I must admit that I am much more generous to their their the, the the least interesting things that they do than I am with the things that are just you know just but in other words, um, I'm very generous to things like the things they do on radio or the things they do on television. Um, I'll sit down and, uh, and I'll watch Papa Romani or something like that, or, um, uh, you know, listen to Groucho on, on, on a Bob Hope radio show or something and, and really enjoy that because I'm not demanding anything of it. But unfortunately, at the circus is a Marx Brothers film. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just have that slightly more, uh, discerning, uh, demand you know if if the material of at the circus was in the incredible jewel robbery i'd be saying it was you know one of the marx mm. brothers classics I, I do i do adjust my expectations um i think a lot of the reason why many of us are much more well disposed to love happy than some of the later ones is not because we think they're better marx brothers it's a better marx brothers film or a funnier marx brothers film than at the circus it's because you adjust your expectations that way. So unfortunately, those three MGMs are are cursed with higher expectation. When I showed my teen daughter Monkey Business and Horse Feathers, uh, she was surprised by how aggressive and assertive they were. She thought that in old comedies, uh, stuff happened to the stars, uh, not the other not the other way around. Uh, and my question is whether that's something that young people still want to see and more importantly will they understand the targets i think so yeah i think they're a lot more vigorous than people expect them to be and a lot a lot more um disrespectful of the surrounding standards well either cultural standards or or standards of behavior you know um, genteel society and so on i think that's that's probably their biggest appeal to to people who come to them fresh now people just have this kind of automatic default view i think that old comedians are are soft and cuddly and and cozy and and they're like a blanket that you pull up around you and 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 push push the modern world mm-hmm. away but the marx brothers aren't like that they they are um inquisitive and and interrogative and um they 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 come with a, you know, with 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 fists clenched yeah. in a, in a in a comedic sense. Um, so I think people would probably be surprised at how modern they are in that way, in that sense, that they're not in any way warm. They don't play for sympathy. They're not well mm-hmm. in Paramount anyway. I, I'm, Harpo, unfortunately, in, in MGM, obviously, is made into a. a, a, a a sentimental figure but at their best they never play for sympathy they don't want your affection they don't want you to think they're cute they don't want you to love them they just come on they they are absolutely forces of nature and extremely funny and i think i don't think that's ever going to stop conveying itself 
to 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 contemporary audiences. It's just getting them to get past the the immediate obstacles before mm-hmm. they see that. I think we are living in a very nostalgic time right now. And partly I think it's because people are uh, eager to retreat from what they see as a very cynical or, or discouraging or terrifying present. Uh, but everything from the films and, and television series and, you know, streaming series that are popular right now, uh, there is a lot of nostalgia. Now, it tends to be nostalgia for a much more recent culture because it it's often the childhood culture of the people who are creating um, cultural content now. So there's a tremendous affection for the 1980s, you know, in, in popular shows right now because they're created by people who who grew up in the 80s. Um, but across the board, I don't know, it seems to me if there were a Marx Brothers thing going on in the culture, I think it would have a pretty good shot now at having what we now consider a mass audience. Um, and these things do reemerge all the time. I mean, everyone who watched Boardwalk Empire knows who Eddie Cantor is. And um, I mean, right now, uh, everyone is uh, agog over The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has a lot to say about Lenny Bruce. Um, It seems to me the Marx Brothers are like in line right now. They're waiting for their moment. And who knows what it'll be? Um, Maybe it'll be maybe a biopic will emerge or maybe somebody will make something that references them. Or maybe... Who knows? Maybe I'll say she is. Will <laughs> find its uh, its success in the mainstream theater or film. Um, I feel like they have a good chance right now. I think there's a lot of affection for older things, mm. for reappraising older things. And the Marx Brothers, relative to a lot of other older things, are very fresh. And and um, as we've been saying, audiences who do find them tend to react very positively. Obviously, the elephant in the room that we're not we're not mentioning is this film, Stan and Ollie, which, whether it's good, bad, medium, terrible, brilliant, um, is getting a lot of attention from you know across the board. It's it's an it's a film that that isn't um, being ignored by anybody really. It's it's just be it's a new film and it's of interest and and there's no kind of fence around it that mm. I can see. I mean, it, it looks, it looks not like anything I would be even vaguely inclined to go and see, but it's, but it's something that is very current and there seems to be a lot of interest in it. Some people like it, some people don't, but I don't think there's any sense that it's in its, in a ghetto. Well, it remains to be seen if this will result in a new audience for Laurel and Hardy films or perhaps just a demand for books about, about them. I agree. I agree, and I'm I'm very cynical about that. I'm extremely cynical about the the power of a of a biopic to to get people interested in the thing itself. But but it's not something that's being treated as an obscure film or a weird film or some strange new project. You know, it's like oh, it's Stan mm. and Ollie. It's it's Lauren and Hardy. They're these old comedians, and you know, it just there seems to be a kind of a very refreshing energy around that project and it could could easily have been the marx brothers it could easily have been you know uh scott mm. alexander's film could have yeah. got made and mm. and um you know i mean one wonders i don't know the raised eyebrows film or whatever i i can't predict what would come of these things but i'm interested that that the stan and ollie film does, nobody seems to be making any excuses for it nobody seems to be making a case for it it's just a new film that looks interesting. 
Obscurity has its own kind of cachet, too. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are saying, oh, my God, who cares about Laurel and Hardy anymore? But just a couple of years ago, there was a very successful Oscar-nominated movie about Florence Foster Jenkins, mm -hmm. you know, who who truly, uh, you know, is infinitely more obscure than Laurel and Hardy or the Marx Brothers. Um, but you make an excellent film with a, a great director and you put Meryl Streep and Hugh Grant in it. And suddenly everyone's talking about Florence Foster Jenkins of all, <laughs> of all the pop culture figures who you would not have expected to get another moment, you know. Um, I, th these things can happen and circumstances conspire all the time to drive things to the, um, the front of our awareness. My my guess is that it's more likely to rekindle interest in older fans uh, rather than making many new ones. Yeah, there was um, there was a big Jolson revival here in the nineties. I don't know if that got across the across the water, but there was a you know a musical about Jolson and it and it it was a big hit and it and you know the 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 compilation CD of real Jolson songs went to the top, top of the yeah. charts. Um, the, there was a film called Hear My Song about. Um, uh, a World War Two entertainer called Joseph Locke, um, which again was a, was a popular film, and and his songs again went to the top of the album charts. So it, it's it's very easily done. I mean, Laurel and Hardy had a had a the the um, Trail of the Lonesome Pine was a was a big hit song in mm -hmm. in Britain in 1977. I think it was I got to number one or number wow. two. Somebody just put it out on a single. These things are are often random, uh, capricious. Okay, so while everyone Googles capricious, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we return on the other side, we'll be having some spontaneous fun. So stay with us. News of the hour on the hour from American Information Radio. This is Dan Streeter, and at this hour, Groucho has joined brothers Gummo, Harpo, and Chico in death. Zeppo is the only one of the famous Marx Brothers comedy team still alive. Death came to Groucho tonight at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. Hospital spokesman Larry Baum told reporters... Comedian Groucho Marx expired at 7.15 of this date, August 19, 1977. The cause of death is listed as pneumonia. With him when he passed away were his son Arthur, his daughter-in-law Lois, and his grandson Andrew. We have not been informed of any arrangements as yet. That was Cedars-Sinai spokesman Larry Baum. Also at the hospital, correspondent Tom Schell told us about Groucho's final hours. In the last few hours of his life, uh, Groucho was visited by members of his family, his son Arthur and his wife Lois, also his grandson Andrew. Aaron Fleming, who was his longtime companion, uh, visited the hospital this evening. She arrived uh, about an hour or maybe two hours before he died. She was permitted to go in and visit with Groucho for a few minutes, and then she started a vigil outside the room. Uh, Groucho was unconscious most of the time, but the hospital said that he did regain consciousness a few times during the last few hours. That was correspondent Tom Schell. Groucho's tribute to Tuscaloosa. That story coming up. Groucho was the ringleader of the Zany Marx Brothers. The titles of their movies reflect their brand of humor. Films such as The Coconuts, Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, A Night at the Opera... The Coconuts and Animal Crackers were also hit stage shows in the 1920s. Groucho's character was unmistakable. A cigar, mustache, and bushy eyebrows, glasses, a duck-like loping strut, a lecherous leer, and the ever-present cigar. 
That was Groucho. And here's a sample of Groucho's humor. One morning, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Then we tried to remove the tusks, but they were embedded in so firmly that we couldn't budge them. Of course, in Alabama, the Tuscaloosa. Groucho began entertaining a new generation in the 1950s through the radio and television series of quiz shows called You Bet Your Life. You Bet Your Life is now being shown in reruns on many television stations, and the old Marx Brothers movies are still seen from time to time. Groucho Marx, who brought laughter to millions of people through five decades, is dead at the age of 86. I'm Dan Streeter, and that's the news. Here news of the hour, on the hour, around the clock, from American Information Radio. A service of ABC News. Hello, this is Groucho Marx. You're listening to the Marx Weathers Council podcast. Now get a hobby, will you? And we're back. Uh, now we're going to switch gears uh, and do something I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, you know, when we prepare for each show, Matthew, Noah, and I discuss how we're going to approach things so we can think about the topic and what might come up and be prepared for whatever it may be. But what I thought might be fun is for us to discard all that and just throw questions at each other that we haven't heard or prepared for or anything. So in other words, uh, pulling a segment out of our asses. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm going to reach into a hat here and there's nothing in it. So I'm going to flip a coin. (laughs) <laughs> but you don't have a, coin. Don't have a coin so i'm just going to go alphabetical order and that starts with me the first question i'm going to ask for you guys is and i'm going to let you guys answer first while i think of answer for myself of all the marx brothers projects that were abandoned or rumored which one would you have liked to have seen come to fruition so i'm going to start with noah here uh, the first thing that leaps to mind is that biopic, the Minis Boys biopic. It wasn't had no connection to the stage Minis Boys, but this was a biopic proposed, I think, in the 1950s with all five Marx Brothers playing some part in it. Um, Matthew has talked about it on previous uh, episodes of our podcast. Uh, that seems to me the one, like, it would be interesting to see, like, what Billy Wilder would have done with them and all that kind of thing. But that's the one that feels the most like a a real Marx Brothers movie in that it would have involved the real Marx Brothers, but in a very different way. Um, that that comes to mind first. Now, wasn't that somehow the end result of all those years talking about a biopic? No, it was separate. Yeah, I yeah, think the same else. title okay. is just a coincidence. Well, I do recall, though, that uh, if the show had been a success, that they were going to uh, develop it into a film version. Maybe that's yeah, no, was this was much about. earlier. It was, a, it was a Lester Cowan project, and I think... To, I think it was the Lester Cowan project. I think it was what what Love Happy was all about. Really, was an excuse to make that happen, and it very nearly did. It was the one. It was the although Lester Cowan announced thousands of mm-hmm. projects uh, involving one or two or three mm-hmm. or four of them. This was the one that that, that the Marx Brothers, Marx Brothers themselves, including Gummo, um, kept saying was going to happen. It was the, the whole point of it of their association with Lester Cowan was they were going to be a, there was going to be a biopic mm-hmm. with actors playing them in for the, the main part of the film, but with a, with a wraparound 
sequence with all five of them, all five of them presumably talking and ending with a new routine, a brand new comedy routine with the real ones themselves. <laughs> and that was that was the uh, the project that Marty Allen was auditioned for. <laughs> Which never fails to make As, me laugh. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, it was it was a def- a lot of those Lester Cowan mm. announcements are mm. moonshine and Groucho says they are in one of his letters to to Miriam but that one wasn't mm. that one was a real project it was a real uh, something they wanted to do and uh, I think I'm I'm right in saying that the uh, Carl Crichton book was part of that mm. of that enterprise it was it was the book of the book mm-hmm. of the film the book of the film that didn't get okay. made. Okay, Matthew. Uh, how about you? Any discarded projects uh, strike your fancy? Well, one one of those Lester Cowan ones was a, a team up with Groucho and, and a British comedian called Sid Field, which is so. If you know Sid Field, uh, I, I suppose you, I presume you don't, but any any British um, comedy archivist who's listening will be thinking Groucho and Sid Field. How could wow? You know that that would just be uh, amazing. But out of the real things, I don't. I don't mourn a lot of them. I, I certainly don't mourn the Billy Wilder film, which I think we would be talking about in the way that we talk about the story of mankind, but even more so. I, I can see nothing but disaster for that project. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the things that came up around that, particularly the things that, that Chico was very optimistically hawking, like a, a color remake of Animal <laughs> Crackers. Mm. Um, there's there's a lot of yeah. this around the the mid fifties. It would have been a live TV version, yeah. He's he's very full of this idea that they're going to remake Animal Crackers, and he says, "I can remember the script as if that's as if that's a you <laughs> yeah. know a reason to do so it." So the yeah. biggest obstacle yeah. is overcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can still remember all the lines. Oh great! You know. But uh, just imagine that. In a, just imagine a technic or you know a color television remake of Animal Crackers in the fifties. How fascinating would that be? In the Hollywood Palace um, with Groucho and Margaret Dumont, um, they they sort of take a feeble step toward recreating the opening of Animal Crackers. Exactly, and I think that's 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 you've led me to to my answer, which is I just wish there was more Marx Brothers. In other words, uh, that kind of thing, the Hollywood Palace kind of stuff uh, on television that we've got on on the uh, Marx Brothers on TV mm-hmm. collection. I just wish there were things like that. With the three of them, there's no, there, there should yeah. be, you know, they were still around. They were all doing television. They just should have done a Hollywood Palace with the three of them. They should have done a Colgate Comedy Hour with the three of them. Oh, mm-hmm. wouldn't that have been that's, so nice? That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that same note about getting more of the Marxes in their prime, I'm going to go with wishing they had filmed the original Go West script by Kalmar and Ruby, uh, which Thalberg commissioned uh, as a follow-up to a uh, possible follow-up to Night at the Opera. I haven't read it. But by all accounts, it's quite good uh, and echoes their paramount lunacy. And I guess it was the source of the Go West song that Groucho later did in Copacabana. Provided that it was, as I believe it, I believe it was uh, set in in what was then the present day. Yeah, I, I seem absolutely. to. I remember talking to Joe about this, and I think he, he who's read the script, and I think he mm-hmm. said it, it is. But but uh, definitely not. I, I don't want to see them in a in a, a western right. costume picture no matter right. who's writing it i just don't want to see that i guess when you think about it the farcical edge of kalmar and ruby wasn't going to mesh with what thalberg was doing with the marxes but it's a it's a shame that at least some of it couldn't have been salvaged uh, none of us have said the um the the room service as it was originally envisaged oh, yeah. 
that that would certainly be worth seeing. I doubt it would be yeah. great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of these ideas would be fascinating to see. I, I don't think more than a few had the potential to be any good. Hmm. So we shouldn't be too distraught. Yeah. The film the film of Alsatias, then. Yeah, yeah film of Alsatias. Mm-hmm. I, I would add A Day at the Races and Duck Soup to the list of films that I, I would have liked to see what would have happened if they had filmed earlier versions of those scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's one for you, boys. If you had to recast one of the three major Marx brothers with another performer from the same era, who would it be? Mm. Which Marx brother and which performer? Interesting. Do you, do you have an answer, Remy? I, I do. Yeah, why don't you give us your answer so we can think about ours? Mm. My answer, which is basically uh, off the top of my head, I just thought of this question before we started today. Uh, I think based on his performance in The Great Dictator, that Jack Oakey could have played Chico. Mm. Ah, yes. I'm not saying he would have been as good or better, but in this in this imaginary uh, scenario, yes. we need an understudy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I always... I always associate them in my mind um, because I think of uh, I have a kind of a, a two tier system with uh, with with these um, with old comedians and and one of the very few people that I, that I put on that top tier with alongside them is W C Fields and I wonder if he might be an interesting substitute for Groucho obviously not being Groucho mm. not impersonating Groucho but occupying that role. Mm. As the the you know the 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 interloper the the person the the con man the um, the person with a fraudulent right to be mm. in whatever position he is um, and with with Harpo and Chico as his as his satellites mm. I think that might be interesting mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. yeah well I need to apologize because this one I guess is too easy um it's almost a cop out uh, but I think Chaplin could have channeled Harpo. He certainly had all the physical tools, and he I think he had the ability to emote uh, both the innocence and the devilish side of the character of the Paramount Harpo. I doubt he could have played the harp, but uh, at least he could roller skate, so uh, you big store fans would be happy. And he also has the aggression. Uh, a lot of people would who might might hear you say that might think ah but he's too sweet he's too sentimental mm-hmm. uh, and they're thinking of city mm-hmm. lights but if you go back to his his keystone films or his early mutual films he he does also uh have that that devilish side mm-hmm. to him so yes that's that makes sense i mm-hmm. think i don't think he would have fit into the marx brothers films very well but i have often thought that uh, Fred Allen is one of the few contemporaries who could have handled Groucho's assignment on You Bet Your Life. He was oh, yeah. spontaneous mm-hmm. and witty yeah, to, yeah. uh, in a way that uh, I don't think anyone but Groucho can really compare with. I also think Zeppo might have made a very good Tony Martin. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the second-rate George Fenneman. <laughs> okay, Matthew, you got another one for us? Yeah, this is what... what, what came to me uh something that i've noticed uh particularly in 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 the facebook group and in discussions about the marx brothers is how much people seem to want to cling to the myths about them and i know that both noah and i in our books have have punctured a few and bob's uh, research has certainly helped me 
to puncture a few. And it's something that doesn't bother me at all. But I've noticed that when I say things like, you know, there really is absolutely no reason to believe that that Groucho said uh, um, or or a director out of wood. It's it's a bit it's a bit silly at this stage of the game to think that he did or, you know, that, that God knows that they, they took their clothes off in Thalberg's office, you know, and obviously these things are publicity stories. They didn't mm-hmm. happen. Um, I've noticed that people have, uh, in many cases are very, very reluctant to believe it and, and sort of bristle at the notion that, that uh, it's not true and resent any suggestion that that it that it might be untrue. Does any part of you share that 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 feeling? Oh, you're you're spoiling them. Because I really don't. I, it just it doesn't it doesn't bother me. But it but it is a very strong thing. People don't don't want to to say things like that. And obviously Noah in his book um, deals with the the Napoleon stuck in traffic uh, and so on. Um, people seem very very they they actually get angry. Well, I think deep down they know that a lot of this may not be true, but unless you have hard evidence, they I, they just don't want their bubbles burst. And, and it's almost impossible to prove that something didn't happen. Like, you can't prove that Groucho never made the cigar comment. That That's what I'm out. Yeah, so that's a good point. You want to. You, you understand that that wants to, do you? Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't bother me at all. I, I In fact, like as with looking at their films with a critical eye, to me, it makes them more interesting. And it tells you something about the era they lived in, about the culture of promoting Hollywood mm. films. But I I do think I, I understand it on some level as, I think when people react negatively to the um, dispelling of myths, it's partly because they take it as an affront to their own expertise. You know, a, a lot of Marx Brothers fans who, you know, they have read uh, Harpo Speaks and Groucho and Me and some of the literature, and they've come away with all this stuff in their heads that, you know, may not be strictly true. But to them, that's the story of the Marx Brothers. And that's a story that they know. They've gone to the trouble to learn that stuff. And so when you tell them, oh, well, that didn't really happen, I, I don't know that they're disappointed in the idea that those are fictions. I think they're disappointed in the idea that they didn't have it right. Um, and and yes. one is also in a strange position, position sometimes as something of an expert. You know, I mean, we all know a lot more about the Marx Brothers than, let's say, the average fan. There are certainly people who know more than we do. Um, but, you know, we have... Name uh, one. Disproportionate. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll do that off the air. Yeah, you know, so it's like... Um, so very often, like, uh, people will say to me, like, you know, then they realize that I'm interested in the Marx Brothers and I've done all this work with them. Um, and they'll start telling me all the things they think they know about them. Oh, you know, they really improvised those films. You know, they <laughs> yeah. they had no script and the director had to lock them in the closet to keep them in one place. And, you know, and, you know, what do you do? You don't want to be like, well, actually, you're wrong. And as an expert, I'm going to tell you what really happened. Um, you know, then it's no more. It's not fun anymore. I think it's partly that. Yes, absolutely. But I do think there is another dimension to it as well, which is I think, they're the, you know, they're the last of the great screen comedians that people are still clinging to the idea that what you see is what you mm. get you know nobody believes that chaplin is is the chaplain they see nobody thinks laurel and hardy are the laurel and hardy they see um for a long time they thought wc fields was the wc fields they see even that one has now been been thoroughly 
put to rest. I think Groucho in particular, but the Marx Brothers in general, are the, are the last ones where people don't want to face up to the fact that these are professional comedians, they're serious men with careers in the movies and on stage. And of course they're not going to take their clothes off in Thalberg's office. What kind of idiot would do that? Of course they're not. But but they just will not let it go. And I think they're the last comedians standing where the 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 publicity mill idea of them as they really are what what you see in the movies um is still being being clung to by the fingernails of of their fans and i've never as i say you know i've just i've never felt that way about them so it seems a bit odd to me that people would want to but but i i i guess people just genuinely do want groucho to be groucho they want harpo to be harpo it's interesting but but um i think i i think they are the last ones really uh, the Marx Brothers might invite that kind of thinking more than other entertainers because of their enigmatic qualities. I mean, you can't, the, the premise of the Marx Brothers act is so unlikely. It could not possibly be the result of one session in a writer's room, you know, we got a wise guy, an Italian and a mute. Uh, you know, I mean, yes. they're, they're, everything they did was the result of many years of a slowly evolving act that wound up being what it was, but never could have been created of whole cloth. And so because they are so enigmatic, um, you know, it, it's, it's easier with them to imagine uh, that they were just, they sprang fully formed. The reason the films are that way is because the men were that way. Um, I've, I was just looking up a quote from, uh, um, uh, this is 1924, uh, as everything I know is from 1924. Uh, <laughs> Charles Collins um, in the Chicago Tribune, after seeing I'll Say She Is, he says, these Marxes bear the test of stellar quality in the theater. They are different. They are as strange as moon calves, as incredible as unicorns. And their show has something of the same fabulous quality. The scientific playgoer, on seeing it, wipes his spectacles, knits his eyebrows, and then in a puzzled way declares that this must be an example of a new species. Uh, very true. And I think partly in an attempt to explain how enigmatic they were, um, there's a, it's very appealing to cling to the idea of like, yeah, if you just open the door and let these guys into a room, the Marx Brothers happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's one. As we all know, the Marxes made an attempt at a uh, silent film with humor risk, and uh, no one was happy with that one. But when they later became Broadway stars, there was talk of them uh, actually getting in the films before sound hit it big uh, with the jazz singer. So so my question is, do you think the Marxes could have succeeded in silence? I think the short answer is no. I mean, maybe uh, half their appeal maybe would have come across, but I think a significant amount of what made them special would would be lost yes i mean i think if they were literally adapting the coconuts rather than just just taking those those comedy characters and putting them into a silent film then obviously they would have prioritized the visual elements of the film and and it it, it, it would have been massively diluted i mean it I always look to Fields because he is the he is the anomaly in this as he is in almost everything else in that he was also a silent film star which seems unimaginable now. I mean I know Laurel and Hardy were too and they were also improved by sound or at least I think they were. But but something of Fields comes across in silent films but obviously it is a very different Fields. So I think we would have got a very different Marx Brothers 
um, that would have been uh, based on what what happened in in coconuts, but but would have been adapted in a very different, much less literal way. And uh, I think, uh, as Noah would be the first to agree from reading um, ext- extremely perceptive comments in his book, um, one's first instinct is to think that the, the least affected would be Harpo. But in actual fact, I think the most affected would be Harpo because he wouldn't be silent anymore. They probably uh, would have had him yeah. speaking in titles, just like uh, in Too Many Kisses. I think they would. I think they would. So I think they would have written a few jokes for Groucho as as titles. But but if you look at any silent comedy where jokes are written as titles, um, they, they get smiles at best. Um, with Groucho, it's it's all in the delivery. So I think it would be a very very different team. I think it would be a much more sort of cohesive team in a way. I don't think they would have stood out as individuals so much. I think it likely would have affected their characters enough so that when sound came in, they they could have been totally different. Yes, and I, I think without speech, I think without speech, Harpo and Groucho might have seemed a lot more limited. And I wonder if, in fact, the one that that shined the most, the most, the most cinematically, uh, you know, photogenic, as it were, cinegenic, mm-hmm. would it actually have been Chico. I wonder if Chico might have actually come come to the fore much more. Uh, with his with his twinkly uh, mm-hmm. twinkly uh, persona, yeah, um, it's very very hard to imagine. But but yes, they would have been a they would have been very different, and that would have carried on into sound. And just to clarify, we're we're mentioning this because there had been talk that coconuts would be adapted as a silent. Um, it didn't go very mm. far, but that that was the first murmur of them coming to the screen. It would yeah. have been very plot heavy, and Groucho would have been much more a part of the a part of the plot whereas i think one of the most one of the most enjoyable things about them, one of the things that people love most about them as we know them is that they're always to one side of what's going on they're always kind of observing as we are and commenting as we might um they're they're not they're not part of the fabric they're always just to one side but in a silent they would be you know if they was going to serve any purpose at all they'd be just right in there in the plot mm-hmm. wouldn't they? yeah uh, Groucho and Harpo might have come off as surprisingly similar in a silent movie together, um, assuming yes. it's not like humorous where they're playing wholly different characters and Groucho's the villain and so on. But in the work we know, um, Harpo is uh, essentially does without speaking the exact same thing Groucho does with speaking, which is constantly undermine whatever is going on um, and insert himself in inappropriate ways into what would otherwise be normal situations and social transactions. And I wonder, it's funny because they seem completely different, uh, strictly on the basis that Groucho never stops talking and Harpo never starts talking. I just thought of something. In The Incredible Jewel Robbery, are we to assume that Harpo could speak just as well as Chico, but just never never got around to it? (laughs) Good question. But also, I think, you know, Chico and Harpo are outsiders, um... Obviously, in terms of in terms of the plot, in terms of how it's set up, Chico and Harpo are outsiders. Groucho isn't. Groucho, however fraudulently, has achieved a position uh, inside of whatever the scenario is. And I think it would be very, very hard to convey in a silent film what is conveyed in a sound film, which is that he is, mm-hmm. but he isn't. He is, but he doesn't deserve to be. 
Um, I don't know how you would get across in a silent film that he is the owner of that hotel. He is the manager of that hotel, but he has no business being the manager of that hotel. That's all done in dialogue. Um, in a silent film, the owner of a hotel is the owner of a hotel, as far as I can mm. imagine. Perhaps I'm being, my imagination is limited there. But I would think that Groucho's, yes, he is, no, he isn't persona is, I think it demands dialogue. It demands sound. I wonder, hypothetically, if, if you imagine hypothetically that there were, a, that there was a person who was known for making fan edits of Marx Brothers movies, which viewed them through slightly <laughs> different lenses, if that person could indeed cut a silent coconut. I bet he's already thought of that. I'll bet he has. I'll, I'll bet he's halfway through it already. Well, it would take some sort of brave idiot to uh, attempt that. <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe somebody will do it. <laughs> okay, Noah, so what, what, what? you have another question for us? Here's one. Uh, if you, this is a little bit sad, actually, mm. but here it is. Um, if you had to erase from existence one of the five Zeppo. Marx oh, Brothers okay. Paramount pictures, <laughs> <laughs> one of the five Paramounts, every copy, it becomes a lost film, and you have to choose one, which would it be? This is a no win situation. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shall I start? <laughs> Please. <laughs> duck, duck soup, because it's not as good as the other ones. It's just, ah. Oh. I mean, in a way, I don't want it to be the lost one, because it'll be the one that people never shut up about. But <laughs> it's the it's it's the one with the least good stuff in it. I'm sorry, but it is. <laughs> the great stuff is great, but there's not enough. <laughs> Please don't interpret my silence here as complicity with that opinion. <laughs> we'll get into that one when we deep dive into duck soup down the line. Oh, that's a that's a tongue twister. <laughs> um, okay, back to this incrim incriminating question. If 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 Martians had come down and demanded to take away every copy of One Paramount, uh, I guess I would give them monkey business. Uh, I guess that's a tough one because I do agree. That in some ways it's the definitive Marx film and and the one to show newcomers, uh, but I guess it's always a step behind the others for me because Groucho is, I guess, in my mind, diminished by not having an authoritative position, and uh, which forces the other people he insults to give, still give him respect. I I really miss that in Monkey Business. Here he's treated like some a nuisance, like he often is in the later MGMs. I guess I still find it funnier than the coconuts, say, but I would never want to give that one up because of its historical importance. You happy, Noah? You uh, forced me to abandon one of my children. I'm really sorry to have put you guys through this. Uh, I, of course, can't choose one because I really love the Marx So let's brothers. move on. <laughs> no, you got to do it. No, do it. With a, since I have a gun to my own head, I, I think I would reluctantly decide that horse feathers um, – is the least essential of the Paramounts. Although I love it. It's my second favorite Marx Brothers movie, period. <laughs> but I think it might be the one that offers the least amount of stuff that none of the others offer. Um, there are unique qualities to the other four Paramounts um, that I think might make them slightly more uh, worthy of, of being the four I would preserve. 
Sorry to bring the mood down, guys. Okay, in a related question <laughs> of the last three MGMs, which one do you want to double the number of prints of? <laughs> okay, we were talking about Marx Brothers myths earlier. Um, so a related question on the same theme is of all of all the Marx Brothers myths that we now identify as Marx Brothers myths, which one do you most wish would be jettisoned? Which which one bothers you the most? Ah, good question. <laughs> I'm going to say, and I guess this is no surprise to anyone who's heard me rail about this constantly over the years, um, is the assumption that Alan Jones and his disciples were replacements for Zeppo. Uh, as I've said, the only time Zeppo ever played a real romantic lead in a film was in Monkey Business. But for some reason, that is the only function that many of the uh, writers remember. Even when Zeppo had almost nothing to do, like in Coconuts and Animal Crackers, there, he still had separate romantic leads. And I think um, it was this more straightforward storytelling that Thalberg was going back to when the brothers landed at MGM. But I've yapped enough about this in another episode, so I'll just shut up about it now. Yes, because those, those MGM films basically duplicate to to some extent, the structure of, of coconuts and animal crackers, not monkey business, horse feathers and duck soup. They are uh, plots that could exist on their own without the Marx brothers. Whereas monkey business, horse feathers and duck soup could not exist without the Marx brothers, but animal crackers and coconuts could. And so could the MGM films. So Zeppo wasn't Oscar Shaw and he wasn't whatever that Art Garfunkel chap's called. What's he called? The chap with the curly hair, Hal something, Thompson. Um, Art they Garfunkel. didn't cast him in that role then. So uh, he's got that curly hair, hasn't he? Um, so, so yes, exactly. If he if he wasn't Oscar Shaw in the Coconuts, then he wouldn't have been Alan Jones in in Anatomy. For all those in the right. pool for getting Art Garfunkel mentioned on the podcast, uh, time to <laughs> time to collect. You know the cover of Bookends, the yeah, the Bookends sure. album. That, that that's a photograph surely of paul simon and that bloke from animal crackers isn't it <laughs> no one make sure you put that up on the blog yeah. <laughs> okay i just wish they'd done why am i so romantic they should have done it's not too late if you're listening paul and art it's not too late well, the, um, my least favorite myth about Simon and Garfunkel is, um, well, I, I guess the, the immediate answer is I, I tend to, it rubs me the wrong way when um, it's suggested that the greatness of the Marx Brothers and their work had mainly to do with anything other than how incredibly hard they worked and how incredibly long they worked at getting good and being good. Um, and so the myths around them being very improvisational on the film sets or the myth around them, you know, completely disregarding everything that was ever written for them. Um, to me, it seems to be part of the myth that it's mainly about talent and that if you just show up and you're a genius, you wind up making great work. Um, what I come away with uh, the most from watching their great films is how very hard they worked and how brilliant their writers were and how the combined exacting efforts of dozens of dozens of people are responsible for this apparently inspired and apparently spontaneous work. Um, but since I've made that point already, even on this episode, um, I would like to throw in, uh, it always, this is hardly a big deal, but, um, I'm, I always notice it when people 
repeat the misconception that the Marx Brothers during their childhoods, when they were growing up, um, were the nephews of one half of the team of Gallagher and Sheen. Gallagher and Sheen were really not a going concern until 1920. And although Al Sheen himself was a big vaudeville star before that, and he was indeed a big deal when the Marx Brothers were growing up, um, it's been asserted over and over again, I think because Gallagher and Sheen is the easiest reference to tell people who Al Sheen was. Um, that just gets perpetuated all over the place. And even Groucho in his book um, makes that mistake or at least conflates that history. So you have in the play Groucho, A Life in Review, uh, the Groucho character in that play comes right out and says that when he was a little kid, he drove everyone in the house crazy um, doing his imitation of Gallagher and Sheen. Uh, but there really was no such thing as Gallagher and Sheen when Groucho was a child. And I'm mad about it. <laughs> yeah, my, mine is a, a variation on, on Noah's, the, the idea that, that they were um, – <clears throat> You know, instinctive improvisational um, uh, geniuses, but specifically with regard to Groucho, I I didn't realize how much I loved Groucho until I wrote my Groucho book. I was always somebody that never had a favorite Marx brother. And if I did, it certainly wouldn't have been Groucho. I certainly wouldn't have said Groucho. Um, when people say to me, who is your favorite Marx brother? I would always have said, oh, no, I don't have a favorite. I love the Marx brothers. But if somebody forced me to, I would have said Chico or something like that. Um, the idea that Groucho is is the leader and is the main, the vital element was something that I would have would have rebelled against. Um, but when I started writing my Groucho book, I decided that that obviously he 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 just is not not because he was a, a greater talent than the others but simply because that's that's the way those projects were put together he obviously was the central figure he is always the leader he's always at the top of the cast list mm. and therefore i think it it actually in a in a paradoxical way it does him a disservice to say that it was totally instinctive and totally natural because if it was then then there was nothing clever about what he did he was he was just a, a wonderfully uh, lucky person um and he wasn't i mean if you if you look at a lot of his later appearances if you look at you bet your life um he's a craftsman He's somebody who puts effort into what he does, who puts work into what he does and makes it look effortless, which is a tremendous skill. But he wasn't uh, an instinctively witty person. And, and I get the feeling or I got the feeling as I as I was writing my book that in actual fact, um, there were there, there were two halves of him that were, were, were really at war or if not quite at war, very much at odds. Um, the real Groucho was was somebody who almost uh, didn't understand that other half of himself, who who almost looked down on that other half of himself, and almost resented the need to be perceived at all times as that person. And I think, particularly in his very in, in his very last years, the Aaron Fleming years, I think that is that is the tragedy actually. 
the tragedy of the of the old Groucho under Aaron Fleming's uh, rule is that he wasn't allowed to be what say uh, George Burns was or Jack Benny was. He couldn't or Bob Hope. He couldn't just go on to to Cabot and reminisce. He couldn't just go on to Cabot and uh, talk about the old days. He had to be not just funny all the time, not just witty all the time, but but at the cutting edge all the time. And I think he he found that a burden and a strain. Mm. And I think we do him a disservice when we pretend that it was otherwise and that it came naturally to him to be otherwise. I think it's fairly obvious that it wasn't. Um, And I I think it's a pity in a way. I I think it undermines his greatness as a craftsman. Absolutely agree. Well, that's a good one to go out on. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our show today because uh, I'm sorry to say it's our last one (laughs) uh, of the year. Well, it is our last show of 2018 and our, and our, uh, our last show of our first year of existence. So thank you for for, uh, listening in. Thank you for all your support. Do stay with us in uh, what I what I can only call 2019, uh, 2019 as I call it. Uh, that's my my little nickname for it. Uh, we will be back. We'll be uh, hopefully uh, entertaining you. We got some great ideas and some great guests coming up. Yeah, we're gonna have Zeppo on. And if you like the show, there's a couple of things you can do to help us out. Uh, first of all. As always, go to iTunes and give us a good review. Uh, we have a lot of great ones up there already, but each new one helps raise our profile in the iTunes store, which uh, turns into new listeners. We'd also love it if you'd come join us in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group to give feedback on each episode and to participate in discussions like this one about the Marxes with literally thousands of fans as rabid as yourself. Yeah. Even your Aunt Minnie is in there. <laughs> And finally, please help our starving co-hosts by purchasing their wonderful Marx Brothers books. Uh, They're available in physical form or on Kindle and can help pass the time between podcasts. So we'll see you in 2019, uh, which I've dubbed the Year of the Manicurist. But until then, (laughs) sit back and enjoy the dulcet tones of the one and only Harpo Marx. Goodbye, everybody. Uh